This conversation is brought to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available at Fuller, a new way to learn and community this fall with youth, family, and culture cohort. This online cohort offers new students a youth-focused pathway within the Master of Divinity, MA in Theology, MA in Theology and Ministry, or MA in Intercultural Studies degree. Interact with Fuller's world-class faculty as part of a tight-knit cohort and benefit from tailored course sequences, dedicated cohort advisors, career planning support, and a commitment to whole life formation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash youth cohort. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of CBF's podcast. We also want to let you know that if you have authors, practitioners, or other people that you think we should feature on the podcast, be sure to drop me an email at ahale at cbf.net. That's A-H-A-L-E at cbf.net. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's conversation is Rosella Ide-White. She is an author of Big Love Big, and she is also a spiritual life coach leadership consultant, speaker, and writer. Rosella, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, for those that aren't familiar with you and your work, tell us a little bit more about you. Absolutely. So I am a writer and a coach, all of the things that you said. Um, I often say I'm a bit of a unicorn. I'm a third-generation Black Puerto Rican Lutheran who has been a member of the ELCA since its inception, so the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America is my tradition, my home denomination. Um, I was born in New York, but my family moved down to Houston, Texas in the 80s. And so for all intents and purposes, Houston is home and I am a Texan girl through and through. Um, I love my state and I love where I live. Um, many don't know that Houston is soon to be the third largest kind of city in the U.S. And we are the most culturally and racially diverse city in the U.S. So I really love where I'm from and the people that make up home. Well, you definitely went from one big ego state to another big ego state. (laughs) (laughs) Except this ego state was a country. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Texas was a country. (laughs) That's very true. Well, our listeners and uh, my Texas friends know how I feel about the state of Texas. So, um, so, uh, you know, walk us through this, this transition for you. I mean, I'm sure that Mm -hmm. has kind of formed your story of going from New York, not only as you said, as being a a black uh, Puerto Rican American, um, but then going to the state of Texas. So walk us through that. Absolutely. Well, we moved when I was six and I knew from the very beginning that it was a very different place to be, right? I I grew up in Queens or was from Queens, New York, and we moved from what I call the concrete jungle that is New York City um, down to suburbia. So we moved to a suburban part of Houston called Missouri City, which is a large African-American or at least at that point had a large African-American middle-class population. Um, And that's where I came of age. But I knew always that I was a bit different. At that point, I think I had a little bit more of an accent. Um, I wore my hair in ways that was not the norm. 
Um, the South, I remember every Sunday, my mother would talk to her mother, my maternal grandmother. She would call every Sunday night and my mom would have stories of like, we saw a horse or there was, you know, a turtle crossing the road and we all stopped. And so there was definitely this sense that we weren't in the quote unquote city anymore, even though Houston is a massive city and, and, um, is a great place to live. But that definitely, I feel like that transition was the beginning or the continuation of my story and the development of someone who knows how to be in different spaces and who has a diverse set of experiences and relationships um, that impact how I see the world. So going from New York, from the family that's Black and Puerto Rican, um, and also living in a diverse community in Queens, and then coming to Houston or to Missouri City, um, and then being introduced to a whole different culture of, you know, how people feel about any myriad of issues. Um, and then I left Houston and went to Atlanta for my first year in college, so another southern city. But Georgia and Texas, even though some might think they're very similar, are very different in a lot of respects. Um, and then eventually going to Philadelphia, so going back up north for seminary and graduate school, and then um, eventually ending up in Chicago, where I was for three and a half years, um, and moved back home about three and a half years ago, back home in Houston. So all of those moves and transitions definitely impacted my life and the way of being that I grew up in. Well, I'm, I'm guessing based on um, kind of knowing a little bit of your story, probably a very similar age. And I think certainly our, our generation um, kind of embraces multiculturalism, but certainly your story of coming from one state to another and a variety of places for college and for seminary has certainly um, created a, a broad kingdom view um, for you. I don't wonder if you might take us a little deeper there. Absolutely. Um, so I, I mean, and I will talk about this, I'm sure when I, we talk a little bit about my book, but I am someone who firmly believes that God doesn't just create diversity. God in and of God's self is diversity. And, and I think that that's something that even unwittingly my parents and my family passed on to me, that there is inherent value and worth in every person, and every person is an image bearer of who God is, um, or who God calls us to be, all of those things. And so I think that was a foundational lesson within my family, being a diverse family ourselves, um, my family as it relates to, to racial kind of look, right, if we think about white to black. I have family that are white with blonde hair, blue eyes, and family that are very, very dark, that are almost like mahogany on the other end of the spectrum. And so from that vantage point, I knew God's creativity up close and personal because my family, people that I was connected to by blood, reflected a particular type of diversity. Um, but also, even in the context that I, that I lived in, right, I, am, I always talk about who I am as my identity because that, that colors how I see the world. It colors my lived experience. But as a Black woman who has Puerto Rican ancestry and, and who shows up in spaces um, that don't always look like me, I've had to learn how to be curious about those spaces and about people, about different experiences. Um, and each of those experiences and my time in different places has impacted the way I think about things. And so I always use the example, being a girl from Texas, like I never thought too much about guns um, because everyone that was not me um, was in a family that had guns, that went hunting, that were responsible gun owners. A lot of my friends who are black women were given guns either at 18 or learned how to, to shoot and do things with guns as young adult women. And so I never thought about guns, 
like outside of that's something that my family didn't have, but a lot of my people had that. And then I moved to Philadelphia. I spent time, like I mentioned, in Chicago. And guns just look and mean something different in those spaces. Um, and so I had to do some, some wondering around why people felt as strongly as they did or why guns were so accessible in one place and they weren't in another place. And so those experiences and the people in those places informed a, an evolving view of something that I really never thought that much about. And that's, that's kind of how I live my life. And that's kind of what I invite people to do and how I invite people to show up is to be curious about experiences because my vantage point or your vantage point is only one. And the world has so much more to teach us if we're open to listening and learning. Mm. Now, you're the founder and chief visionary officer of RHW Consulting. Tell us more about RHW. So RHW are also my initials, Rosella Aze White, um, and I'm named for both of my grandmothers. So my paternal grandmother, her name is Rose Ella, and she and her family were from the shores of Virginia. She is the granddaughter of sharecroppers um, and is kind of the, the her life is very much similar to the, the American black narrative or story of those who were enslaved peoples and then made their way from the South to the North. And so I'm named for her um, on my, my first name. And then my middle name is Ive, and that's after my mother's mom. Um, her name was Ive Gisela, and she is descendant or descended from Jamaican and Puerto Rican um, folks that came from the Caribbean up to New York in the, the 30s. And so my business, RHW Consulting, the name matters because it's my initials. It's in honor of these women that were huge influences in my life, my life of faith, my life in leadership. Um, and it also stands for Restoring Hearts to Wholeness. So one of the things that I have become very clear about in my lived experience is that my gift and my call is to accompany people as they uncover the things that have broken their heart. And I often say it's, it's much broader than romantic um, brokenheartedness, but just the disappointments of life, the ways of being that they thought they knew without a shadow of a doubt to be true, that at some point they learned weren't. Um, and so there's a broken experience. I mean, I feel like that's part of the human condition that we are broken and that my call is to speak into the heart of people, to, to see the heart of a person and to help them um, excavate those things that have broken their hearts and to find those things that, that bring them restoration. Um, and healing and wholeness. So I do that in RHW Consulting through coaching, both um, life and leadership coaching, individual and group coaching, retreats for women, which I offer, um, that really focus on that restoration, healing, and wholeness piece. And then also leadership consulting, um, because I believe that there's a particular way of leading in the world that is that can be influenced by loving and listening and learning. Um, and I have a lot of leadership experience and so I'm able to help people lean into that, that new way of being. In, in May, you had a new book come out, Love Big, The Power of Revolutionary Relationships to Heal the World. Love is a pretty big and broad topic. Mm -hmm. um, yet through the book, you, you zero in on the essential motivator. Uh, love is essential motivator for faith and true peace and reconciliation. You wrote, Faith leads us to recreate our world and engage in revolutionary relationships with ourselves and with others. Such relationships are life-giving, risk-taking, vulnerable, gracious, forgiving, and diverse. Walk us through 
what was going on in your faith journey that you needed to write this book now? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So I, I'm a particular kind of Christian, and I feel like that has to be stated, especially in the time that we're in, in our country, in our world. Um, and I, I say that I'm a particular type of Christian because I believe that the most, and this is controversial in some spaces, but uh, the, the salvific act, if you will, um, was the incarnation, was God choosing to take on human form um, to become human and to do so in a way that modeled um, what God intended for God's creation and our relationships with each other. And, and I feel like there are a lot of people like me that that resonates deeply. Um, but we are in a time when Christianity is, has a bad rap and some could say that it's deserving of that because of what's been promoted publicly a lot of times has not been a faith or a religious ideology that is inclusive and welcoming and hospitable and really concerned for the person in ways that are life giving and not death dealing. And so on the, my, my, my biggest hope with this book was that there would be another rendering of, of God, especially God of the Christian tradition that people might find meaning in and that might understand um, this, this image because they've experienced it firsthand. Um, and so this book kind of grew out of that way of thinking, my own thinking about faith and religion and spirituality, but also took up the real, um, one of the real mysteries of our faith of the Christian tradition, um, which is the Trinity. And so I start the book off talking a little bit about the fact that I'm not someone who is an apologist, right? I don't try to prove things. That's not who I am in my call. I'm a, a practical theologian and one who has a pastoral leaning, right? So I'm concerned about how it is we, we make sense of the story that God has given us, how our stories interact with God's story or intersect with God's story, and how people find meaning and, and wholeness from a story that is life-giving, right? That's the pastoral side of my theology. And so when I think about the Trinity, I'm not someone who tries to prove that it exists or argue the way that it works. Like that's just not my education or my background or my leaning. I'm curious more so about why would God choose to show up at the beginning of time in relationship, right? Not a solo God, but a God that created the heavens and the earth as a, a us, as a we, as a this is what we're creating, um, this relational God, I'm really curious about, about that implications of that, right? If, if God is, is the, the finisher and perfecter and head of our faith, then what does relationship mean that God even shows up in relationship? And so we have this, like, on the one hand, this new rendering of who God is and how God shows up and what love can look like. On the other hand, um, this delving into a central tenet of our faith as Christians, the Trinity. And then on the, like, still another hand, even though we only have two hands, <laughs> but on this, this third way, this, this implication of the greatest two commandments. The first, to love the Lord your God with your whole self, your whole being. And the second, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And all of us could recite the first and second in ways that sound like love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. But we often leave out the as yourself. And I 
in this time in my life and throughout my entire existence could not understand how I love something as myself if I don't love myself. And so this book really is about the journey of coming to know God or, or seeing God in a new way that leads you to more fully come to see and know and love yourself, which then compels you and, and pulls you to love others um, that reflect this God in what I call this revolutionary relationship. Mm. No, trust me, there are days that I wish I had like three or four or five hands. Um, so I, I totally get it. It's like, especially doing something in the yard. It's like, if I could just use another set of hands right now, that'd be, be Well, you really strike at the core. I mean, relationships are core to our identity as, as humans. We are relational beings. Um, yet the functionality and health of our relationships, whether romantic or business or um, ecclesial or friendships, are propelled by our own sense of self-worth and love. And you talk about this a great deal that we tend to devalue ourselves as it affects um, our relationship with other people. So take us a little deeper there to the devaluing of ourselves. Yeah, at some point, and I, if you trace kind of religious history and again, the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? the insistence or persistent kind of way of talking about our faith and what God did as being an act of violence, right? So God chose to sacrifice God's own son for us. There is on the one hand, we talk about being worthy and made in God's image, but that message a lot of times is drowned out by how wretched we are, how undeserving we are, how lacking we are. And I think that that has deeply embedded itself in our collective and individual psyche, um, both of our personal way of viewing ourselves and our religious way of viewing ourselves, right? The self is looked at with disdain um, as something that needs to be fixed, to be made right. And if I, even as a person who's Christian, who understands the salvation act of the, or not understands, but who recognizes the salvific act of the cross, at some point I'm like, but yeah, God did that already, right? Like, if we follow that line, then God sacrificed it all so that we could have abundant life. But yet we don't, we don't believe it, right? And so the self-flagellation is, is persistent and consistent. And what I really want to invite people to, and this goes back to the RHW of the Restoring Hearts to Wholeness, is for the, us to all recognize that we are loved and worthy and that the very, you know, by the very, um, God's very nature put God's divine image implanted that in human form. So it says something about the value of our bodies. It says something about the value of humanity. And, and I choose to, to focus on God as lover because every other rendering of God, um, a lot of renderings of God, I should say, really kind of say that you have to be made worthy in order to be loved by God. Even though that's not a part of our tradition, it still seeps its way into the way of talking, right? We can all talk about we're saved by grace through faith and thinking about the Ephesians text. And the reality is, is that we don't really trust God's grace. We don't really believe God's grace. And then that translates into, I don't really believe that I'm worthy and that I'm lovable and that I, you know, am deserving, even in my undeservedness of, of love and affection and belonging. And I've learned this lesson in my own struggle with mental illness 
and in, in some of my most humbling moments, that there is a correlation between how I understand these things to be true about myself and how I engage others, right? So I can say that I'm gracious to people, but when I'm not gracious to myself, then my graciousness to others will be limited, right? I can say that someone else is worthy of love and belonging, but if I'm not practicing that with myself, then there's a stunting, stuntedness that happens um, in my other relationships. And so part of my, my theory, and this is from my own lived experience, from observing others and from being in relationships, is that there is a correlation between the ways in which we love ourselves and the ways in which we love other people. And I think that, that there was something there when Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. You you talk about revolutionary relationships. That sounds... Um like very triumphant and radical term. So, so what do you mean by this term? Mm. So I believe that, that these are relationships that are modeled in the God of the Trinity. And, and that also impacts or leads me to my understanding of what love is. And so if I believe that God is love and love is God, in the Trinity, I see God engaging in three acts of love. The first is creation. The second is liberation, and the third is sustenance for our entire being, right? So in God the Creator, we see a God that creates, gives life to, right? It's life-giving. In God um, as the Son or as the child, we see Jesus, which comes to liberate us from the ways of this world that are really oppressive and divisive and to bring us into wholeness um, that is characterized by things like mercy and compassion and hospitality. And then in God's third act of love, we see God leaving with us the advocate, the Holy Spirit, right? The feminine energy, the breath of God that moves in and flows amongst, amongst us for the purpose of, of sustenance, for sustaining us on this journey. And I believe that sustenance is holistic. And so when I think about revolutionary relationships, I think about them as departing from this example. Um, now, every relationship is not revolutionary, and I often have to remind people that what I'm talking about is relationships that are life-giving and that are trying to be healthy, right? If you are in a relationship that is taking life, that um, causes you to think less of yourself, that leads you to do things or say things that you don't believe are true to who you are, like those are not the relationships that I'm talking about. I'm talking about relationships that are life-giving that model love, that, that model creativity, that model liberation, and that, that model sustenance or provide sustenance. And I'm talking about relationships that are reciprocal, 
um, that it's not about one person doing all the work. Um, and also relationships that are based in a covenant mentality versus commitment. And this is where I often, again, have to stress that covenant mentality is not meant for those relationships that someone is being harmed, but relationships where you decide that you are going to show up regardless of how the other person shows up. Um, and I've learned that the most in my friendships and my platonic sisterly and brotherly uh, friendships and relationships, right? The people that continue to show up and fight for me, um, that hold me accountable, um, but that, that care and concern is reciprocal, reciprocated. Um, so, so revolutionary is less about the triumphalism imagery and more about a radical way of thinking about how we give of ourselves and receive of others for the sake of something bigger, right? It's not just about me feeling good in this relationship. It's about me, me doing good, about me being a person that is up to, to doing something in this world that makes a difference. Hmm. When, you, when you began this call, you spoke about your identity as, as a black Puerto Rican um, woman from New York and from Texas. I, let me just note that not many people can say they're from New York and from Texas. Um, <laughs> in, in the book, you also talk uh, about your identity. And, and there's a fascinating section of the book. It's in chapter six, in which you talk about the soul of black folks and your, your blackness being questioned. You wrote, so much of my life had been moving between two worlds, a black world and a white world. I was never really at home in a black world and certainly not at home in a white world. I was constantly questioning who I was at the core and how I should show up in the world. I wonder if you'll take us uh, a little deeper there. Yeah, so I refer or I reference W.E.B. Du Bois, who um, was a black sociologist. Many of us believe my background in sociology. He was one of the first sociologists in our country um, as it relates to the study of culture and community. And the Philadelphia Negro um, was one of his huge ethnographic studies and then the souls of black folks where he talks about this idea of double consciousness so that black people are always walking around with a two-ness. And I think I extrapolate that a bit and say that for many of us who are people of color or people of differing identities, right? We walk through the world holding each of those identities and having to figure out when one identity is welcome when the other is not and how to show up. Part of my, my work and my hope for myself and for others is that we find integration because it's so tiring, right, to, to, to try to figure out what version of yourself is welcome in a space. Um, but I recognize, you know, to be Black, and I talk about this as a, as a cultural thing, means that there's certain things that you know, there's certain ways of being that you embody, there's certain language that is used, um, both actual like articulated verbal language, but then also music language, heart language, familial language. And it's different than mainstream society, right? Which many would, in times of intense race um, tensions, which I think that's always been true because that is the original sin of this country, racism, we would say that it's not, white culture, it's mainstream culture or mainstream society. But the reality is, is that in the United States of America, mainstream society um, came to be with the convergence of white folks so that there was no longer direct connection to the different ethnic identities that made people who they were culturally to create the white um, idea, right? The white way of being, which now is said to be mainstream society. 
Um, and you can see this based on if you go, like we talk about going to drugstores or like if you go to Target or Walmart, if I'm looking for things for my type of hair, there's only a, a small area where those things will be, right? But there's rows and rows of Pantene or whatever products, but those products don't work for me. Or if I'm looking for things for skincare, there's like one or two manufacturers that will create things specifically for more dark or darker skin, right? More skin with more melanin. And so you recognize early on as a person that is not of the mainstream, also white culture, that who you are is not lifted up in the same way. And then on the other hand, as someone who did have certain experiences, um, come from a, 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 fairly, a fairly middle class reality, my mom um, was an educator, but um, went into administration, and so she retired as an assistant principal of a high school. My father was an operating room nurse at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Um, you know, so I was afforded a particular life and access because that's what money gives you is access to opportunities to travel, to summer programs, to all of these things. And I recognized very quickly the language and the ways of being that I was a part of in my home or with my friends was not the same in those other spaces, especially in my faith spaces. So I grew up as a, a Lutheran, which is a historically white denomination, but I grew up in black churches, black Lutheran churches. But when I would go to events, with more Lutherans, I, I learned really quickly that Lutherans were not black, by and large. They were, they were white. Obviously, there are communities of color within that. But the music, the way of being, the conversation, the way we talk about God, the way we embody spirituality and faith, all of those things differed in those settings. And so, again, I was constantly trying to figure out, who am I going to be in what space? And as I got older, I found that A, that was tiring, and B, I felt like I was never able to be my most authentic self and that I didn't want to live like that anymore. I was going to be who I am in every space. And so for Black folks, if I'm seen as acting quote-unquote white or if I'm seen as one of the nicknames I used to have as an Oreo, so I'm Black on the outside but white on the inside, that's not my problem, that's their problem. And for white folks, if I seem to be too aggressive or if I seem to be um, whatever, like the, the underhanded compliment that I get all the time and why people don't even realize they're doing it is that I'm articulate because the implication is, is that they don't know other articulate black people, um, but I'm going to continue to show up as I am all the time. Um, and that even as it's been liberating in a lot of respects, it also is, is, is risky um, and, and I would say I, I found that when I lean into my integrated self, it gives people permission to do the same because I don't believe that my experience is that odd, right? You talk to anybody that's a person of color or anybody that's a different gender. I mean, I think any of the differences we embody, people could, uh, I think, connect with that. And I, I, I want us to stop living compartmentalized lives. I believe that we find wholeness and that's what our faith promises and, and integration. I think you've certainly raised some fascinating points. And so, um, you know, I wonder for local church ministers, where, where does the church come into this conversation? I, you know, I guess as I'm listening to you, I think more often than not, the church has been reactionary to how culture has progressed on um, 
understanding what is exclusive, what is racist. So how might the church be at the forefront of this conversation and navigating this issue with its members and how it relates to the community? Of navigating racism or? This, this conversation around identity. I mean, and your story okay. offers kind of a, a multiplicity of, of identities. You know, um, you yeah. could be so many different things to so many different people, but choosing, I love what you said, choosing to be yourself which being yourself is not, hey, I'm not this particular label. I'm not this uh, phrase you can come up with. I'm not with this horrible racist thing that you don't realize is racist when you're saying it to me. Mm. Um, you know, so how might the church navigate this conversation? I think it's like reminding people who they are and whose they are, right? We joke, or you know, the scene in um, Black Panther when um, the mother is reminding the son in a time of intense, fighting of and uh, something that's happening that could decide the future of their people right she yells out you know tell them who you are or remind them who you are and that that sticks with me because I think I mean the singular goal of the church even though we do everything a lot of times but this and I can only speak about my tradition but the singular goal of our church is to form disciples to form people who live cruciform lives modeled after Jesus the Christ and if we take that back to the first and second commandment, which Jesus himself says are the greatest, that's to love God with your whole being and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so issues of identity come back to, for people of faith, knowing who you are and to whom do you belong, but also comes back to how do you learn yourself? What do you know about yourself, right? Um, because only until I do that work can I fully value Another, I think, and I'm, I'm testing that out. Like, I don't know if I said that before, but I think there, again, is a correlation between how I value myself, how I take the time to know myself, to learn myself. You know, when I, I spend more time and I'm more patient with me, I definitely do that for others, you know, but it, it's like we said, we're told to do that first for others, but we never do it for ourselves. We're never introspective. We're never curious. We're never wondering about the things that got us to this moment and the ways of belief that we have and why do we believe those things and where did that come from and is the thing that I was taught at 10 years old so relevant at 38 and maybe I should be you know diving into this a little bit more and so the church has to create spaces for us to critically engage conversations and topics around identity um, around who we are as people of faith around who we are as people in the world around what our faith means as it relates to our politics and our political lives, like all of the things that we're not supposed to talk about should be the things that we're talking about in the church because the church has a very unique um, thing to offer. And that is, is the gospel, right? That is the good news of Jesus Christ that says that you are created in the image of the divine and you um, are, are here to change the world and to do so in ways that are life-giving and that, you know, uh, take up issues of injustice and that are compassionate and merciful. Um, so issues of identity or a lack of conversations around identity could probably be traced back to our discipleship or lack of discipleship around our um, real delving into what does it mean that everybody be made in the image of the divine and, and how do we recognize when that's not the case, when our policies don't reflect that, when our 
our communities and structures and systems don't reflect that. I think we have to become much more curious and interrogate everything through our faith lens. But I don't think it's for the faint of heart. And I think to their credit, I mean, I'm in a different space now. I'm no longer serving in a traditional church role. And so I'm not paid by the people who are in pews. And I know that so many of my colleagues struggle because to speak some of these things but to be to put their, their lives and their, their economic realities at risk. I don't know. The Bible gives us a long history of people being corrected and really receiving that with grace and not revolting against the messenger. I don't, so. Well, that's your that was sarcasm, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and by the way, as you know, as as you're saying, well, I'm working this out for the first time. As I say it, just full disclosure, you know, we get 10% if this new idea has any type of you know monetary value to it. So. <laughs> I think there should be a there should be an equity uh, scale for people of color when it comes to that percentage. <laughs> oh, abs- absolutely. You can, you can set the percentage, which you can set it at zero. There you so, go. <laughs> uh, so, so I, I, th- I certainly think that um, one of the defining characteristics of my generation, and again, not to assume we're in the same generation, is holding uh, public figures accountable. And we are able, mm. we, are, we are the research generation with the World Wide Web at our fingertips uh, every second of the day. In fact, a, a recent study found that more than half the people sitting in a congregation are fact-checking a minister as he's preaching a sermon. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you talk a good deal about self-accountability, and you got into this a mm-hmm. little bit in your last statement. You wrote, um, I used to really dislike being held accountable, but I've come to realize that it's not necessarily accountability that I dislike. It's accountability without relationships. Um, Take us a little deeper there. Yeah. Well, and I don't know what generation you're in. I'm a 1981 baby. My birthday was actually July 21st. Um, And so I often say I'm a cusp, right? I'm on the cusp of Gen X and millennials. So there are times I associate a lot more with Gen Xers. There's times I associate with millennials, but I'm a bridge, right? Like I I help both of the generations see and and hear from each other. Um, But as it relates to... Yeah, I'm trying to think of where to go with that. Can you say the quote one more time from the book? Wait, are you trying to say that you don't have every line of your book memorized? No, I don't. Okay. I forget what I write when I write it. <laughs> <laughs> I have no qualms about that. that <laughs> it's out in the world I'm now, done. So yeah, I'm... yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So the quote is, I used to really dislike being held accountable, uh, but mm-hmm. I've come to realize that it's not necessarily accountability that I dislike. It's accountability without relationships. Yeah. Okay. So accountability for me, it, it has to be relational. <laughs> like I know myself, I don't believe in critique without relationship. I think that that it's important for the person who is on the receiving end of the quote unquote being held accountable or, or receiving end of the critique, that they know that you have their best interest at heart. Right. So I'm not a fan of people who are not in relationship with the minister, giving them notes on their sermon. Like that, that is probably one of the most deflating things for so many people because you're pouring out and you've done this work, hopefully, and you are reflecting back to the people, something and then in, after that moment, to just be told either what's wrong or what someone thinks that they disagree with. Like, I don't think people take into account 
the fact that, A, they're on the receiving end of all of these people after a Sunday, and B, that that may not be the thing that the person needs to hear in that moment. I think that accountability is absolutely necessary, and accountability is defined as um, holding people to what they say they're going to do or to who they say they're going to be, right? And the people in my life that hold me accountable were also in reciprocal relationships with. So, yeah, a best friend can call me out on not showing up in a particular way. And I, even if I don't like it, I hear it and I value it because I know that she has my best interest at heart. But we're not in relationships with people. We can assume that, but there, I, I don't think that we should assume that. I think that, that we have to be curious about one another. And we have to also ask ourselves, why am I trying to hold this person accountable? I think um, because, again, is it my job as a stranger to hold someone accountable to something when I don't know them? I can be curious about why they're doing or saying things that they're doing. And, again, I think that there's differing moments for this, right? So if, if I'm seeing something happen or someone is committing violence against someone else, I'm going to do something in that moment and hold them accountable to a better way of being because something, someone's life is at risk, or at least I would like to think I would. Um, but in general, I think that I'm not a, a huge fan of fact checking just for fact checking or trying to, to gain knowledge to make sure that you, the other person knows that you know the thing, because in that moment, you've already skipped over the self-reflection aspect because you're already looking to find something that the person is saying versus, versus letting that thing sit and wondering about what you're feeling and then maybe doing the work of, of, of deeper reflection or digging later. I just think that in those moments, the accountability is not meant to, to hold someone to a higher standard, but it's meant to, to sometimes shame people, which I think is really harmful. Um, I don't know if I answered the question. No, you did. And I mean, in going back to this fact checking and critiquing sermons, I mean, if you're up to it, I've got like a list of former church members and their contact information. Can you just call them and just speak <laughs> that, that truth into their life? <laughs> I'll take that as a maybe. That's funny. No, yeah. that's, that's hysterical. That's hysterical. <laughs> and I, yeah. Uh. <laughs> So the uh, the book's out, the organization's rolling. What's next for you? So I want to do more with the book. Um, so I'm going to I'm having a series of retreats for women. I am going to be out at this um, space called 1440 Multiversity in December, doing a retreat specifically around the book. Um, I want to do some stuff with young people and the book as it relates to their relationships and love of self. Um, and I mean, I'm always creating, there's some things, there's some irons in the fire and I'm trying to figure out what the love, the next iteration of love big could be. I definitely want to do a podcast because one of the things that I get a lot of questions about is, okay, how do I, how do I engage in revolutionary relationships? How do I start the journey of loving myself, like truly loving myself and also liking myself. And I, I really want to be in conversation with folks. Like I, I get tired of hearing my voice. And so I want, I want to invite other people to share stories of their relationships and the lessons that they've learned. Um, and I also want to create a community of people who are on this journey of, of loving self, loving others, and changing the world or healing the world or being a part of the world's transformation. Because this is the other thing that I want people to know. This book is not just about your personal 
your relationship with yourself and your relationship with others just for that. It's because I believe that those relationships have the power to impact our world for the better. And so I want people to engage in issues of injustice, but to do it with an eye towards relationality, to do it um, side by side, because I believe that when we are doing things together, it, it makes a difference. Um, it's empowering. And so the invitation for people who are committed to this way of being to join together to create um, or to elevate um, compassion and mercy and justice and love would be like something I would love to see happen. All right. For those that want to stay connected with Rosella, you can visit her website, rosellahwhite.com. You can also follow her on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can go out and purchase Love Big, The Power of Revolutionary Relationships to Heal the World Wherever Books Are Sold. Rosella, thank you for inviting us to learn to establish a healthy relationship with self in order to have revolutionary relationships with others. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.